I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, uh, where I am joined by a full quota of failed critics this week. I am your host, Steve Norman. I am joined by James Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And Jerry McCauley. Hello. Uh, This week, we uh, will be reviewing World War Z as our main review, or World War Z, depending on your uh, what side of the pond you are listening in, or you are from. We've also got it's what dead. we've been... <laughs> it's dead. Uh, we've also got what we've been watching, um, and the quiz, and some news. We'll start off with the quiz, because the news gets a bit heavy this week. Um, yeah. So we'll start off with the quiz, and then we'll depress you. Uh, so... The format of the quiz, obviously, is I read the list of an actor or actress or director's back catalogue, um, and they have to guess who it is. So I'm starting off in 1996 with The Cable Guy, and then going 97, Anaconda. James. Yes, James. Is it Matthew Broderick? It's not Matthew Broderick. Uh, Next is Armageddon. Uh, Owen, yes, is it Owen. John Voight? It's not John Voight. Oh. Okay. Uh, then I've got Shanghai Noon. Behind Enemy... James! Yes, oh. James. Owen Wilson. It is Owen yeah. Wilson. <laughs> yes. Behind Enemy Lines, The Royal Tenenbaums, Zoolander, um, Meet the Fockers, Starsky and Hutch, You, Me and Dupree, etc, etc, etc. Do you know why I didn't get that? Cable guy. Why didn't you get that? Because there's only one film I've ever seen where I haven't wanted to punch Owen Wilson's head through the fucking screen. Yeah, that oh. better have been Royal Tenenbaums. No, nah, Midnight in Paris. Oh, that's a lovely film. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm knocked his head out of it. Well, well Armageddon. Armageddon. He's, he's a bit minor. Can't really remember him in Armageddon. He doesn't really do anything. He makes us like a Star Wars reference and then dies. Yeah. That's that's Steve's dream. <laughs> But yeah, he's irritating. Even in Zoolander, and I love Zoolander, but he is irritating as fuck. He has some good lines in that. Tonight, hasn't he? <laughs> he? He's good. He's quite good in Zoolander, though. I think he's good in Zoolander. He's, he's alright. Like he's just an annoying twat. That's all. I'm not saying he's not funny at times, and I think you know it's, his voice acting for Cars is decent enough. It's just he's a bit of a knobhead. And his his presence on screen irritates me and generally wants me want to makes me want to hurt him. Hmm. Fair enough. 
What's a lovely thought going into the news? Yeah. And um, James, do you want to kick us off with some news? Yeah, sadly this week, um, we we lost a bit of a screen legend, actually. A bit of a, a modern screen legend. James Gandolfini, best known for um, his role as Tony Soprano in uh, the Emmy Award winning uh, TV series on HBO, The Sopranos, died at the age of 51 um, while on holiday. Uh, he, he, like I say, he's best known for his TV work uh, as Tony Soprano, but in recent years, putting in some fantastic performances in films like In the Loop, uh, in Zero Dark Thirty, and in last year's uh, Killing Them Softly. Uh, really, really well-respected actor, the uh, Broadway lights were dimmed this week in his honour uh, because he's also Tony-nominated uh, screen actor as well. Um, absolutely fantastic. I, I remember seeing him the first time in True Romance and just the sheer level of latent malevolence he brought to that that scene uh, in a hotel room uh, with Rosanna Arquette. Shock it. He, he's just a real proper presence on screen and... He'll be sadly missed. And the saddest thing about all this, actually, was um, he had a daughter who was born just in October last year. Like, that's that's a, that's really, really quite sad. And, um, yeah, it, it was quite gutting to wake up to that news, actually. Um, yeah, that, like, I don't know what else to say, apart from the fact that I've, he's, he's always had a brilliant charisma in everything that he's done. Uh, a fantastic screen presence, uh, and, uh, and and apparently a genuinely nice guy as well. So um, yeah, we'll miss you, miss you, Big G. Yeah, that's the thing that's come out of most of the comments, isn't it? People saying that actually, th- th- there has been so many people saying that he was a really lovely mm. bloke outside of film, which is yeah, uh, and like kind of backed up with anecdotes rather than yeah. just saying, oh, he was a nice guy because he's dead. No, genu- he genuinely seemed uh, a bit of a. Almost a bit of a late bloomer as well. It felt like a late bloomer because, to be honest, he, he, I thought he was older than 51. Uh, mm. But yeah, uh, it's been in some really, really good, you know, minor films recently. He was in The Incredible Burt Wonderstone as well. Yeah. Actually, one of the better things in that film, I thought. Um, but yeah, uh, sadly, no. And that does kind of mean we'll never, ever get any kind of Sopranos related thing ever again on that. It you know, also makes me a little bit sad. Mm, although we we shouldn't really, because that's just. Uh, well, no. Yeah. I'd I'd like to have seen a. I'd like. I always like having the door open on that. Maybe there being something else mm. with Tony Soprano because Soprano is perfect mm, television. That that was that role he owned is like a is the mm. uh, conflicted mob boss. Yeah, and that, that's great, wasn't it? It was it was a genuinely compelling psychological pro- portrait of a man who has family and honour and oh, it, it, if you haven't seen The Sopranos, you really, really shouldn't. I'm looking at you, Jerry. I'm looking at your avatar on Skype and staring at you, saying, Jerry, you should really watch The Sopranos. Just... It is definitely some of the best television you will watch. Mm-hmm. I've just never got round to it, to be honest. And I, I'm always tempted by the box set, but the box set is intimidatingly large. You've got to admit, it's only about 13 episodes a season, though. It's it's not as it's not as. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch it at the time. I watched it about four years ago. I think I started watching it through. Uh, it's, I'm glad I didn't watch it at the time, in a way, because there was a lot of hype about it. And it, it to me, it was the kind of program I did want to kind of 
not rattle through, but it was always a program that a good two or three episodes in a row seemed to feel feel right. You always wanted uh, to keep watching, didn't you? You didn't want to no. <laughs> stop watching. Exactly, and I think what what it redefined adult television on tel- uh, uh, well in America and and the world really, because if you think before the Sopranos. There, there wasn't anything as hard-hitting. There wasn't anything as kind of brutally honest and also quite cinematic on screen. And I, I honestly think without The Sopranos, you're less likely to have had something like The Wire, something like Breaking Bad, even down to uh, Mad Men, which was created by Matthew Weiner, who did basically did his apprenticeship in television, working on The Sopranos as well. Uh, and when you watch Mad Men, although it's com- two completely different shows in terms of their subject matter, actually the style and the way they approach things, very, very similar. You see a lot of The Sopranos in Mad Men. Um, so I think we all owe The Sopranos a huge favour, and it wouldn't have been the success it was without James Gandolfini. Right, uh, and Owen has uh, another... Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't just uh, Gandolfini who's died this week. It was Richard Matheson as well, who's also a screen legend in um, a slightly different way. Uh, he died at 87 years old, so he's had a fairly good innings, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I've only read two of his two of his books. So I read I Am Legend and uh, The Shrinking Man, but both are excellent, detailed paranoid science fiction, the kind of stuff that he's famed for. Um, and both I, so I Am Legend isn't even that long a book either, is it? It's only, no. It might even be under 200 pages, but it's got so it, much in it. Yeah, that that's right. It's so detailed for such a short book. Yeah, it's short. I'll, I'll definitely read it then. <laughs> it's short. But uh, it's it's a book and a, and a kind of and the adaptations we've spoken about a few times on this uh, podcast, and it, it's clearly it's clearly affected a couple of you. Because I, I I've never seen any of the films or the book, and uh, what I have seen though is Jewel, and um, yes. that's such an incredible film. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's my my only real experience of him, and I, and I feel really bad that I've not. Mm. I'm hearing all these fantastic people that I really admire talk about how much of an influence he was on them, and it makes me feel a bit bad. Did I do I remember you saying once you watched The Pit and the Pendulum? Oh, did he? Yeah. Did he write that? Yeah, that was. On- okay, I really enjoyed that as well. That was in my decade of film, 1961. Oh yeah, he worked a lot with um, Roger Corman, didn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah. Yeah. So he's. Oh, I mean, good. I'm gonna. It, one of the other things he was known for quite a lot actually was the Twilight Zone. So you see a lot of his mm-hmm. stuff floating into various, um, uh, you know, feature films and stuff of that era. So, yeah, you, you, you don't notice, but he's, he crops up in a lot of those type of films. Um, mm. But, you know, he, he, he wrote the screenplay for the best bit of the Twilight Zone movie as well, the mm. John Lithgow segment, Nightmare at 20,000 oh, Feet. The airline one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. which, you know, we've talked about before. It's definitely the yeah. best bit, and it is partly because of his writing. Partly because John Lithgow is brilliant, but also, you know, he's just, he's just the master of that kind of yeah. that kind of uh, story. So, yeah, I mean, it's a shame he's passed. I mean, he, he's left a really strong legacy of work, though. And the, you think of the people that he's inspired countless writers and authors and film directors and, and fans even. And I think it's um, it's a shame he's gone, but there's a lot of his stuff about that, you know, for people like us, we can just sort of 
get you know we can find and watch and appreciate us you know without thinking it's dated i think he's um he's a very one of the best science fiction writers okay and uh some jim carrey slash kick-ass 2 related news as well yeah um this is quite interesting kick-ass 2 um one of the more anticipated films of this summer um it was a bit of a shock over the weekend uh jim carrey who well, I wouldn't say stars in it, but has a very large cameo uh, in it, uh, has basically come out on Twitter and said that he can no longer support the film uh, in good conscience due to its portrayal of violence. Uh, he Now, what has... I know, just to clear up a little bit, he was a huge fan of the first film. Uh, in fact, he went on Conan O'Brien and dressed as Kick-Ass at one point and sang a duet with Conan O'Brien. Um, but... What happened to change his mind so hugely was about a month after he finished filming, the Sandy Hook shootings happened. And ever since then, he has become very, very vocally um, anti-gun. Um, and this has clearly now resulted... He's, it's, he's clearly been mulling over. And for him, morally, he can't support the film. Um, although he did point out that he... He's got nothing against the people who've made the film who are very talented people. He just can't support that level of violence. I think he had only just seen a finished cut of it. Um, Mark Miller, who wrote the original comic that it's based on and has been involved with the shoot, went on his forum, posted quite uh, quite an in-depth response, Mm -hmm. uh, put it that way, uh, in which, for example, he... Kind of, if you haven't seen Man of Steel, don't go and read it because there's a big spoiler for Man of Steel in there where he talks, and what he's talking about is actually how he, in his eyes, Kick-Ass Two deals with the consequences of violence, unlike other Hollywood blockbusters um, this summer, for example, Man of Steel. Um, and he is right, to be fair. I, well, yeah, and I've I've not seen Kick-Ass Two. Uh, yeah, none of us have seen it yet. But if it's anything like Kick-Ass 1, that actually did talk about the consequences of violence, quite quite clearly, I thought, um, and actually told human stories uh, about what happens with violence. So, and, and was also very clearly cartoonish and outlandish and fun as well. You know, this, not... is, this is my big thing. Oh, fuck. It really pisses me off, this. I mean... I... It links back, basically, to, you know, Tarantino. When Django Unchained came out, mm. we talked about this as well, didn't we? This debate yeah. just keeps on coming up. You know, that whole debate that came with his interview with Christian Guru Murphy. Oh, yeah. You know, and to be honest, I, I'm with Tarantino on this. You know, mm. we, we can't blame filmmakers for the state of the world. There are hundreds and thousands of other factors involved in this supposed increase in violence in, in our society, which, by the way, is, is a dubious thing. It's a dubious notion. If you yep. look at it, it turns out crap's Statistically, steadily yep. falling for decades. But the media tends yep. to want to scare you. There's, a, there's, there's some really good books uh, written about the sort of psychology and, and the evolutionary purposes of why we yep. cling to bad news and negativity. Um, there's a great book called Abundance, if anybody wants to check that out, which, which deals with this kind of thing. But, you know, all right, exposure to sort of so-called fetishised violence is one small factor and the media always quote it but I th- you have to take it in context mm. the way yeah. I see it right this what you've touched upon James and what Mark Miller said is there's two ways violence is depicted on screen there's mm. a faceless impersonal big body count way of doing things and there's a way that depicts the effects of violence 
from a few or so. You compare Man of Steel or the Avengers with something like The Dark Knight Rises or Django Unchained, and there's a, there's a real difference in the way that violence and is portrayed in those things. You know, the reasons Tarantino films and, and Kick-Ass 1 and, you know, the Kick-Ass franchise, I assume, are shocking is because it all just feels really real. Even when it's done in a stylized and artistic and cartoonish way, the the collateral damage in Man of Steel you don't see. And it's it's far more catastrophic yeah. than, than the, the rampage at the end of Django, for instance. That, that's, it's more catastrophic than that in, in Superman. And it's just not, it's not touched on at all. Yeah. And we talked about how Django, you know, in Django Unchained, Tarantino has different ways of portraying violence. Even within that same film, there's, there's an artistic mm. way, which is done for a visual effect, and there's a yeah. horribly realistic way. Mm. And the cartoonish style, as he said, is in Kick-Ass as well in some scenes, and, yeah. and in others, particularly in the early bits of Kick-Ass, I mean, obviously we can't talk about Kick-Ass 2, but we see uh, Dave get his arse handed to him. And we yeah. see the damage it's done to him, we see his injuries. And, you know, in, in Nolan's Batman films, we see the toll it takes on Bruce. You know, we see the conflict that comes up in these characters as well. And, and from the trailers, Kick-Ass 2 looks like it's going to focus a lot on Dave's reluctance to engage in violence. Yeah. So, you know, it, it really it really bothers me. Because, I mean, Paul Verhoeven, guy who uh, directed Total Recall, yeah. uh, Robocop, he famously said, when people were criticising how ultra-violent his films are, he said nothing he could ever do on screen could measure up to the horror of living under Nazi occupation as a child. Mm. And that really, when you think about it, is, is the core of this issue, is filmmakers and actors are trying to reflect history and society. They're not trying to control it. You know, there's violence in films because we are violent. A lot of the time, it's supposed to be shocking so that the viewer asks uncomfortable questions. That, you know, unfortunately, most people don't take that to its logical conclusion. But the, the Mandingo fight scene in Django, if you've not seen it, it's not giving too much away. That has a lot of social commentary in it. You mm. should be watching that feeling horribly uncomfortable. I was. Mm. And then you should be asking if there are things happening now that bear any similarity to this historical thing, you know, any similarity to white men reveling in such horror. Mm. Or, or alternatively, you should realise that by not reacting in horror you probably need to rethink your moral values. You're probably not fucking human. You know, it isn't just done to say, oh, look, there's two black slaves fighting and white men are betting on it. It's not that, is it? There's something yeah. being trying to be said. So I think it's just a fundamental error to see cinematic depictions, certain cinematic depictions, shall we say, as glorifying violence or encouraging people to commit violent acts. Because, I mean, in this case particularly, it's showing the dark side of violence. It's showing the effects and partly why Kick-Ass is significant is because it showed that being a superhero isn't a walk in the park. That kicking bad guys' asses does have, you know, ramifications. That there's there's connotations for their entire lives. There's injuries that, and and the injuries seem more real than the ones that are shrugged off in a lot of films. And there's just a humanity about it that something like Man of Steel lacks. And that was one of my criticisms of Man of Steel. So for Jim Carrey to suggest that he can't support that is just nonsense. I mean, if we're comparing, The Destruction in the Mask, which is a Jim Carrey film, is a far more damning message, and that's a family film. But yeah. there's all sorts of carnage in that, and violence, and, you know, shooting, and all sorts. And it's, it's you know, it's just, it's just hypocritical bollocks, basically. Cinema, when you do it properly, is art. That's what it should be. And using the medium of cinema to shine a light on different bits of humanity is one of the primary purposes and humans are 
unfortunately, very violent. They always have been, they always will be. And to ignore that, you're not solving anything. You know, the whole point of it is to use a slightly fantastical setting and, and sort of slightly fantastical events and highlight things that are really, really real. God, Kick-Ass doesn't glorify violence as a franchise. It's showing you that violence isn't cool. It's showing you that, you know, all these noble ideas and the idea, the idea of having this cool life as a superhero isn't really quite as shiny and happy as you think it is. The reality is bloody horrible and it's hard work and you have to endure a lot of horrible stuff as well. And that's why I love the first one and it's why I'll go and see the second one. So fuck you, Jim Carrey, basically. <laughs> just, wow. just to play devil's advocate wow. a little bit. <laughs> you know, Sorry, Owen. I'm just, I am on Jerry's side and I agree with, mm. with everything he said, but just to play devil's advocate... You know, where is the line, though? There's, there has to be a line, doesn't there? Because you can't just reflect everything in society. You couldn't show kiddie porn, for example, because that, that happens in society, and it would repulse you, and it would, you know... It, but you, you couldn't put that in on a film, even if it was, you know, fake. It, it's mm. still happening, so... Yeah. You know, there is, a, there is a line, I think, that's got to be drawn. Oh, and sometimes, oh, oh. sometimes I think that actors do have to... Um, well, not not necessarily actors, but so, someone has to take two step forward for us to go one step backwards and meet in the the middle, you know. To, to I, yeah, I can see. It. The thing is, I think what's happened is, I did. I think, in a way, to give Jim Carrey a small bit of credit here, I think he's been doing a lot of work on trying to get gun laws um, sorted out. Uh, you know, as as a public figure. He's been doing a lot of work at kind of in the gun control lobby in America. And it's almost if he didn't say something about this film, all of that work will get undone because mm. people because unfortunately unintelligent um people, like for example the entirety of Fox News <laughs> like that, will go, Well, you can't listen to him because he's in a violent movie. Um and so it doing this has almost gone it obviously the gun lobby stuff is more important to him than a film. Okay, what I will say though is uh, the man is also uh, an anti-vaccination uh, person, despite all the scientific evidence as well. And I kind of worry that he he is shooting his mouth off without actually realizing what he's talking about, mm-hmm. because I, because actors do that and they live in some of them, not all of them, live in a bit of a weird bubble. Uh, but I think we've we've kind of given that a, enough. Uh, oxygen of publicity for now, and we'll, we'll it'll probably come back up again when we end up reviewing Kickass Two later on in the summer. Okay. Uh, any more news? Just one very very quick <laughs> one because we've taken up a lot here, uh, and I know it's something that's going to be disappointing to Steve. Uh, uh, Roland Emmerich has announced that there will be a sequel to Independence Day in 2015, but it will not star Will Smith don't, don't because he is quote too expensive. Don't bother them. <laughs> Maybe they could like offset some of his wages by giving him all the royalties from a theme tune, obviously. Yeah, just don't bother making it. I'll uh, uh, tell you what, if it gets Jeff Goldblum back on my screen, I'm all for it. All, all I want is that two, and that's it. I don't care what else happens. But Apparently he's got half the people back, um, and so people are assuming Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum, because they're not Bill expensive these days. Be, Bill Pullman can't still be president, because it's outside of two terms, so that doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was quite an extraordinary situation. I bet he's become a um, dictator. He's uh, yeah, this could be really dark. Bill Pullman's gone mad on power after defeating the aliens. And he won't yeah. have to act. To be fair, Bill Pullman's probably crazy because he's been on his own for years. 
Yeah. Wasn't he in that terrible um, US set Torchwood series? He was. As yeah. like a kind of weird paedophile. Yeah. <laughs> but no. Well, I mean, it's going to be like a massive summer blockbuster. No matter how bad it is, it's going to make the same kind of money as like Transformers 3D. Yeah. So surely you can afford Will Smith. And if, if Liam Neeson is going to get $20 million for Taken 3, oh, yeah, after Taken 2 was made, you can afford yeah. Will Smith for Independence Day 2. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not but, looking forward to this, I have to admit. <laughs> I mean, I like right. um, Independence Day was good. He did uh, Universal Soldier as well, I think, didn't he? Roland Emmerich, yeah. yeah. Stargate he's, was decent as well, but he's. I quite like some Roland Emmerich films. He's, he's the, the one that he's. Yes. Yeah, he did do Day After Tomorrow, and he's doing um, White House Down later on this year That's with uh, Channing Tatum and. But he also uh, did 2012 and Godzilla. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely on the kind of spectacular but empty brainless side of the blockbuster yeah. which, which, genre. Which is fine for some blockbusters like Independence yeah. Day. But yeah, you need, yeah. you need Will Smith back, or else yeah. it's a different film. He did the Patriot. The Patriot was pretty decent. Is that the anti-English Mel Gibson film? Yeah, that was all right. Isn't every, isn't every Mel Gibson film anti-English in some? <laughs> it's anti some kind of ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Up next, we'll have uh, what we've been watching. Um, so welcome back, part two of the podcast, and what we've been watching, and James will start us off. Yes, okay. I've not actually got any notes for this, because I've literally come back from this screening uh, not long before we start the podcast. Uh, so tonight I went to a screening of This Is The End, which was one of Steve's choices uh, in our summer preview. Um, and it is a comedy written and directed by Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, who created Pineapple Express um, and some other films. Oh, Superbad as well, I think. Um, basically, the premise is a huge number of celebrities are partying at James Franco's house. Basically, uh, everyone in the film plays themselves, don't they? That's exactly in right. So, situation. Yeah, so does it's it James work? Franco's house. Does it work? Do you know what? Actually, it does. I, I enjoyed it. There, a, for a start, the most important thing is that you get some early laughs, and you do. It need, it's a film that will need to pick up some momentum. What I will say, it's a film that you need to actually know who these people are, because it's not like famous, famous um, actors. No, there's, uh, there's, a few, there's a few sort of headliners that are, are big. You know, uh, Seth Rogen's big, Jonah Hill... Shane Franco, they're all... and even that, but they're only big with a certain group of people. For example, yeah. I went to a free screening, and these free screenings are always filled by middle-aged people who've got nothing else better to do than make sure they get free screening tickets to the is cinema. The, the and half of them, it went over their head I was gonna because say, they the had of, no idea. Is it the kind of screening you go to, sort of like, and you think, why are half of these people here? This yeah, not exactly. It's the people that pick up, they see a free film and they don't think, do I want to go and see this free film? What have I heard about? They go, it's a free film, I'm going to see it. Whatever it is. They're better to do their lives to sit and watch something they like for two and a half hours. Yeah, exactly. So they probably didn't get the first hour where you have got um, people like, yeah, you've got Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, but you've got people like Mindy Kaling who I know from The Office and the Mindy Kaling Project and a few minor roles in films. Um, Aziz Ansari from Parks and Recreation. Michael Sarah from Arrested Development and uh, Superbad and um, Juno, that kind of thing. Um, Michael Sarah is actually 
absolutely fantastic in this, playing completely against type. Um, it's got Rihanna in it for a very small section uh, and Emma Watson, but generally it is a lot of this kind of US sitcom trendy uh, comedy crowd, the new comedy crowd, um, which which is brilliant in some ways because they're fantastic at doing stuff like this. And it is really, really funny to see them play against time. James Franco comes across as a completely hipsterish dick <laughs> all the way through it. And, it. and that is brilliant because actually you can see there's a lot of um, him in it. And uh, uh, it was quite interesting. Evan Goldberg had a challenge to try and get the actors to do things that yeah, he kept trying apparently during the filming of it, getting them to go, No, I'm not gonna do that, that's going too far. And apparently James Franco was the only one who never said he wasn't going to try and <laughs> um, and he fully, fully commits this. You also get Danny McBride in it, who Danny McBride is probably one of the best people in this. When he's in something that's not written brilliantly, he's an annoying bastard. But in this, he is absolutely brilliant. Um and he probably as good as in Eastbound and Down, which I really enjoy. He he is perfectly set up for this. Um, it's very funny, and then it just changes gear and becomes one of the most ridiculous, over-the-top, uh, end-of-the-world, apocalyptic films I've seen. And I cannot believe that they've made it on this budget. It actually looked quite impressive in places. And does it, it, yeah, does, it, does it hold its quality or does it stay good while it changes to that or is what i'd say is there it kind of dips as it transitions but then picks up again quite often with films like this and, and actually most hollywood mainstream comedies they're pretty good for about an hour and then they kind of run out of ideas and stuff and start trying to do serious story and stuff like that i even found that with 21 jump street which i did really enjoyed but even that after the hour mark dipped whereas i found that this on the hour mark dipped for a bit and then just got so fucking bonkers and then picked up its humour again that it it kept me going right to the end. So it did keep its momentum going right to the end. Um, It's also... It is massively self-indulgent. Some people will hate this film. Um, I'm the type of person who who likes watching actors play themselves I, I like i love curb your enthusiasm for example i think that's a that's a very intelligent and a brilliant version of um getting to see hollywood actors like ted danson for example uh play themselves in a weird kind of way um and this does get a bit self-indulgent in places but the characters are charming enough to kind of pull it off and they're, and importantly they're funny enough to pull it off some of the jokes don't quite stick some of the jokes don't quite land but on the whole and considering it was 50% ad-libbed actually they've I think they've done a really good job it of holding really it together much, I film. didn't realise that they were ad-libbing that much of the film that's yeah that's quite yeah. impressive if it's a good quality film yeah and I, I it's to be honest it's better than any scripted Hollywood comedy I've seen in the last 18 months so mm. they're, they're clearly doing something apparently one um, 15 second scene um, they couldn't shoot for an hour and a half because um, Danny McBride just kept changing his responses to these questions and they just couldn't... It, it, sound, it looks like... You know, usually when you see a film that looks like it was great fun to film, yeah. it's usually terrible to watch. Yeah, Ocean's 12, for example. Um, this actually kind of invites you into... Uh, the party this invites you in to enjoy it with them and part of that is one of the characters is an outsider it's um uh jay 
Bacharel, I think that's it. Bar- Barichel, Jay Barichel, who is an old childhood friend of Seth Rogen. He actually plays the outsider. He's the one who's not part of this group, and he's come to hang out with them. So you've actually gotten in. It could have been really, really self-indulgent if it was just about celebrities, but we've almost got a proxy there for us, and I think that really helps. Um, Jay Barichel's <clears throat> in Knocked Up. Pardon? He's in Knocked Up. He's in Knocked Up. He's the, the, that's the, it. The yeah, he's in Knocked Up, but then he's never really done anything with them afterwards and it, that's quite interesting and he was in then in Million Dollar Baby he was in Goon last year as well yeah so one one other thing I do want to mention is the special effects they're actually really quite impressive um, for a, a low budget comedy uh, the special effects the apocalyptic end of the world type of, it's, it, it's really good fun uh, and it looks good and I hope it does well because it's nice to see a film that seems quite free of studio and marketing involvement. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, Steve, you, you picked a good one there for your previews. Of course I did. When's it actually out? Do you know when it's out on? It's out this Friday. I think that's my Friday sorted then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll go next. Uh, I will review The Sixth Sense. Not seen it probably since about, well, sorry, since the time it came out. Um, I've still not seen it. No? No. Because yeah. I know what happens. Well, I can't be asked. <laughs> For any of you who don't know by now, Bruce Willis is a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> if you Damn don't know that by now, if 13 years ago it came out, if you don't know that, then tough luck. You do know If you that. haven't come across a cultural reference to that in the intervening three, 13 years. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I think that's fair. There's some films you can't spoil, and that's one of them. Can I just point out on the serious note, which I've only just remembered, that Mark Miller response to Jim Carrey we mentioned, mm-hmm. it's got a massive Man of Steel spoiler in it. Uh, yeah, I did mention that. Oh, did I, did say, that? I did say don't read it if you've not seen Man of Steel. Yeah, yeah. anyway. That, was, that really annoyed yeah. me when I read that. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Can we edit this out? Because it's really interrupted my flow. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not happy about this. So, Steve, Sixth Sense. Yes, starring Bruce Willis, who's a ghost, and Hayley Joel Osment, who might as well be by now. He could well be, I don't know. Um, <laughs> he, he really hasn't done much since this in AI. Uh, completely different to how I remember it, but I probably watched it when I was about 14, so and it's the first time I've seen it since. Um, despite it being about a child who can see dead people, it's not that scary a film. It's not like a horror by any means, although there are some quite disturbing scenes in it it's not what I'd call a horror it's not a film that's designed to scare you I don't think but it is a very good film with a uh, a very good performance by Haley Joe Osman who can somehow see ghosts you know his, his, his character can see ghosts uh, and kind of has to come to terms with in effect helping these dead people realise they're dead and realise you know, help them in whatever they need help with. He he plays a fantastic performance. Uh, I think he was actually Academy Award nominated for, for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in that. Uh, and like I said, all downhill since then. Bruce Willis, I think, is by no means at his best in this film. Um, he's, he's just okay, but he can be um, a lot, lot better. Yeah, I think uh, it's more that it's an interesting character rather than a great performance. With um, yeah, it's yeah. definitely an interesting character because obviously, <clears throat> of his, you know, 
I've, I've spoiled it for people now who haven't seen it. He's a ghost, but he doesn't know he's a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Takes him a long time to realise it. And the first time I watched it, I don't know about the other people here who watched it, but did you did you cotton on to that twist straight away the first time you watched it? Can you remember if you cottoned on kind of quite quickly? I yeah, I already knew the twist before I watched it. <coughs> I, yeah, it was. Um, I don't remember thinking it was that obvious. But I didn't. No. I didn't know what it was already. So, yeah. I, I mean, I can't remember the first time I watched it, but it's. I think it's quite cleverly done. The way that he kind of has no interaction with, with anyone else, but you know, Haley Joe Osmond. Mm-hmm. But he's obviously trying to interact with these people. I think it's quite cleverly done there. Um, yeah. And then yeah, so. Uh, after that film was made, it's all gone downhill for Osmond and Shyamalan. <laughs> well, yeah, After Earth was just... Yeah. We've been over this, but yeah, terrible film, really. Yes. Um, Jerry, what are you going to review? Uh, quickly, uh, the first hour of Django, the original Western, which I believe Owen is a big fan of. Watched yeah, that tonight. Yeah and then was rudely interrupted by having to record the podcast. So I can only review the first hour. But the first ten minutes or so were absolute dog shit. And then it got quite compelling. It was quite good. So I was, I was enjoying it. But don't be fooled by the opening scene being laughably amateurish. Hmm. It does pick up, and it was pretty good. Also, there's a scene that I don't want to spoil, but Owen will know, and anyone who's seen it will know, that when he reveals what's in the coffin or who's in the coffin, I can see how that influenced Django Unchained, shall we say. Mm. When, when the general turns up and he opens the coffin. I was like, ah, it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, because he famously drags his coffin around Django. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I think that's just one of the, the coolest parts of the film, actually. Yeah, it's a it's, very cool film, and that's a, that's a really cool part of it. It's the mystery of what's in it or who's in it. You, know? you don't know why he's dragging the fucking coffin around. He's slightly pigeon-toed, which made me laugh as well. It keeps focusing on his <laughs> cowboy boots, and he's slightly pigeon-toed. Um, <laughs> the other film I want to quickly talk about is um, Date Night, which is from a few years ago. Steve Carell, Tina Fey. Uh, uh, it has got Mark Wahlberg in. It's got a couple of good cameos. Who I won't spoil if you don't know who they are. Uh, I got William Fitchner in as well, out of heat. Um, it was just the definition of mediocre, to be honest. Mm, yeah. I know. I it, 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 was, yeah. it was a five out of ten film, to put it that way. It was just, it was all right. There was the odd thing that made me smile. There was a couple of scenes that were pretty good. There was a lot of just dross and shit. But, mm. hmm. I wouldn't go out yeah, it's it. a shame, because I'm a big fan. I really like Tina Fey. And I really like Steve Carell, but neither of them seem to get or choose the film roles that kind of show that to an extent. Because Tina Fey is fantastic in Thirty Rock. She's a brilliant writer. She's a fantastic comic actress. Uh, uh, yeah, Mean Girls. She wrote and was in, and that, I, I will defend Mean Girls to my final breath. I think it's a fantastic film, but. I'm, I'm yet to. She was in that Baby Mama with Amy Poehler. I love both of them. That was also mediocre to the extreme. And it's like there must be good scripts out there for someone like Tina Fey. Yeah, and I mean, Carell's weird because he seems to have this real hit and miss choice thing. Mm. 
you know, I mean, his voice work in Despicable Me is excellent. Crazy Stupid Love in a slightly mm. serious part, he was good in. Mm. Yeah. Forty uh, Year Old Virgin, he's very, very good in. He, mm. he carries that a lot. Um, his character in Anchorman is, is excellent. He's, he's good in Little Miss Sunshine as well, if anybody's seen that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So. He's but obviously then, Michael Scott in the US office. Well, yeah, mm. but I mean, sticking strictly to his, his film stuff, it's weird that he does all this stuff and then he'll do things like Bewitched and Evan Almighty mm. and Horton Hears a Who and Get Smart and Date Night and Dinner for Schmucks was on as well. Recently. Oh, that's such a pointless, terrible remake of a great little French film. That's Yeah. No, that that was a bad film. Again, a lot of people in there that I like. I, I'm a big fan of Paul Rudd as well. well we were, we were like round at friends, and there was you know there was a few of us sat around, and, and we had the TV on in the background. And because of how many people were in it, we saw the cast of like, oh, why have I never heard of this film? I'll stick that yeah. watch it in the background. It's got Jermaine from Flight of the Concords in. It's got Thingy from uh, IT Crowd. Uh, yeah, it's got people I like. Well, Jermaine being in it was literally several of us went, oh my god, it's Jermaine out of Flight of the Concords. Let's watch yeah. this, and then. It's like, oh, oh god, yeah, it was so bad. Yeah, he was also the main baddie in uh, Man in Black Three, and I didn't realise till halfway through. Really? Yeah, it's got terrible. It's got like huge load of makeup on. I didn't know it was him. I just the voice sounded a bit weird, and it was basically him doing his David Bowie impression. Excellent. <laughs> it clicked halfway through the film. Went it really sounds like. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Just a quick one as well. I mean, I'm not going to say too much else mm. about this. Um, Steve Carell in The Flash. When he was on um, Graham Norton, I think he was on. Mm. He looks completely different. He's really tanned and hipsterish. Bizarre. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah, because I. Oh, okay. Like, he's almost barely recognisable because he wears, like, sort of hipsterish glasses. And he was really, really tanned and he just looked quite cool. It was so weird. Mm. He didn't look awkward like he usually does. <laughs> and, yes, Owen, what are you reviewing for us? Um, well, first I'm going to review, um, well, it was it was Cineworld's secret screening. So for about two weeks, they had on the website that they were, they were going to show a film. Um, but they, they didn't announce what the film was going to be. So it was there for, like, people who have unlimited cards and you can go and book this ticket. But, you, you know, you, you won't know until, like, I think it was, like, five minutes before it was due to be shown. They teased what it was going to be, different clues they were putting out for about two or three weeks. Finally, uh, as I kind of expected it to be, it was the film Now You See Me, um, which is about a group of um, uh, magicians. They carry out a heist and they are tracked by a cop and Interpol. Uh, That's literally just about everything it covers. Um, It's it's great cast, though. I mean, it's um, I think Jesse Eisenberg's in it, Woody Harrelson's in it. Um, it's got Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman. Um, is it Isla Fisher? Yeah, Isla Fisher's in yeah. it. Mark Ruffalo, who is... Oh, like Ruffalo, yeah. yeah. He steals the show, actually. He plays um, a detective, Dylan Rhodes, who's the guy who's tracking uh, the four horsemen, as they're called. And he does uh, a brilliant job as this, this crazed, uh, desperate, um, you know, determined detective. I think he does really well. He's a very underrated actor, actually, Mark Ruffalo, I think. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I, I've only seen him in a few films, but he's been great in all of them. Uh, I do want to see more of his, his films. But now you see me, it's kind of like, it's not at the same level as, but it is kind of like Ocean's Eleven meets The Prestige. I think they're both two much better films than Now You See Me. Um, 
it's not it's nowhere near as sophisticated or as clever as those two films but that's the kind of thing it's it's aspiring to be you know a group of magicians they pull off a heist where they rob a bank uh, in a completely different country whilst they're doing a show so there's the whole sort of mystery about it and then you have a series of like two more big set piece uh heists that they pull off um and it's quite exciting i think when it when it does that the film it really kicks up a gear you know and it, 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 everything mm. moves faster and it gets a bit more tense and it, it's quite it's quite good the the problem i guess is that when it's between those set pieces it does drag a little bit i mean they have the usual car chase scene um you know there's the whole oh we're gonna interview them and we're gonna try and figure out who they are and then it's just, it just kind of gets a little bit lackluster but because of the performances in it you know eisenberg's really good and Woody Harrelson as well is quite funny. Um, it, I mean, they, they managed to just about carry the film. So it, it ends up being quite a reasonable, amusing little film that if you've got a couple of spare and fancy a trip to the cinema when it's out next month, then, yeah, I recommend it. I wouldn't go in expecting something as good as Ocean's Eleven. Um, mm. But, you know, it's a, it's a decent little film and it was quite fun. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the other The other film I just want to mention kind of briefly, really, it's uh, called the ABCs of Death. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is this the 26 different horror directors doing short segments? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. They were given a budget of um, five grand each, and then they were told to go make a film that corris- that's to do with death, but also uh, represents a letter of the alphabet. Okay. So it's got quite a lot of... Um, a lot of famous directors in there. Well, not famous, but you know, kind of famous indie directors. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, probably about 80% of them I'd never heard of before, which is quite good because, you know, you get to see a little snippet of what they're about and how they make films. I will say, though, that the, some of them are just dreadful. Some of these, these films are just just downright awful. Um, but I'm not going to really talk about those because without going into detail about why they're awful, I think it kind of spoils it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there's a few in there that are really good. So Ben Wheatley, who's done mm-hmm. uh, Sightseers and Kill List and direct the episodes of Ideal, he uh, has a bit where he's got the letter U, and it's U is for Unearthed. That's his film. And it's all shot through the eyes of this creature that's being chased by a group of, uh, like, villagers. Um, And it's just really, really good. It's just... (laughs) It's a very short film. It's very simple. Um, But it kind of... It's really good. It, It almost subverts the role of the viewer in, like, a found footage film where you're following, like, the heroes or the people who are, you know, uh, the humans who are being chased by the monster. In this, you're the monster that's being chased by the people. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting anyway. Mm. Um, And it just... It really gives a flavour of what he's about with its, like, British... It's set in, like, a woods in the dark and people are carrying, like, torches and stuff. I think it's... it's, If you want to see what Ben Wheatley is is like then you know mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a great little taster and and where's that available uh i saw it on netflix us okay yeah. but uh there's one other that i wanted to quickly mention as well which is one short which is called uh tea is for toilet and <laughs> it sounds stupid it is a little bit stupid <laughs> but it's directed by a, a british guy called lee hardcastle who won a competition to be in this film he he has okay. yeah he's got a claymation um, segment where the only things he's ever made before, I think, are like where he condenses 
other films saying like Shaun of the Dead and stuff like that down into two minutes with like claymation. Um, and in, right. in this, he's got like a short scene, which is about a young young kid who's scared of going to the toilet. It's his first time going to the toilet, and it's you know he's scared of uh, scared of it, and he's, you know as all young kids are, I suppose, at that stage. Um, but it's brilliant, really great voice acting in it. It's quite creative, quite imaginative. It's a bit silly, as you kind of imagine about a kid who's scared of going to the loo. But it's it's quite sweet, and I, I thought it, you know aside from the the death parts of it. Um, but yeah, it's one of the better segments, so uh, I look forward to seeing what else he can do. There we are. Uh, so that's all for what we've been watching, um, and we'll be up next with a review of World War Z slash Z. Our main review this week is World War Z. Uh, zombies have taken over the world, and Brad Pitt has to save us from all of them. The film stars Brad Pitt and some zombies and very little else, to be honest. <laughs> Here's a clip. Mr. Undersecretary. Your secretary here says you were his best investigator when you were at the UN. We'll send you in with the team. Help Dr. Fosbach find whatever it is he needs. Bro, I, I want it for the circumstances to speak for themselves. Can't help you. Can't leave my family. Take a look around here, Mr. Lane. Each and every one of these people are here because they serve a purpose. There's no room here for non-essential personnel. You want to help your family? Let's figure out how we stop this. It's your choice, Mr. Lane. So, yeah, that was a clip uh, from World War Z where Brad Pitt, who left behind his old job to concentrate on his family, is basically told, uh, yeah, you've got to come and work for us now or we're kicking you off this big rescue ship that we've got. And is really, really amazing at everything. Oh, bloody hell, Jerry gets tucked in, doesn't he, straight <laughs> away? <laughs> um, well, I think we do want to just quickly clear up near the beginning for anyone who isn't sure. Right, now, I'm, I'm a fan of the book. I know Owen isn't. I know Steve is. I don't know if Jerry's even read it. I've, I've read the um, the diaries one, not the. Oh, uh, you haven't read the uh, World War uh, Max books' World War Z then? Okay. Um, See, I thought what... Owen would like it, considering he's a fan of the zombie genre. But, yeah, 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 but yeah. I don't think it's zombie enough for him. <laughs> I like what I liked about the book. Okay, I did. I read the Zombie Survival Guide first, and then okay. I read World War Z. What I liked about um, World War Z was the concept of it. Okay, I liked mm-hmm. the fact that it was doing something different with zombies, um, and the fact that it was written like a, a documented account or a journalistic mm-hmm. account of what actually happened. That was really interesting. I thought that was quite a nice touch. What I didn't like was Max Brooks' writing. Um, it okay, really wound me up, and to the point where I got to, the, I was just about to just throw the book away. I just thought, I'm not even going to bother putting it on my shelf. I'm just going to drop it in a bin. Um, See, I found the survival guide to be quite boring, not going to lie. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is quite a dry book. It is literally just a manual. But because it's the kind of thing that that I, that I end up daydreaming old. about every so <laughs> it was quite it's interesting. That book's worth having. Mm. Exactly, yeah. It's got to be on everyone's shelf. What, what, what if it actually happens? Who's going to yeah. look the fool then? Eh? Yeah. So, but I think what we need to 
essentially clear, you know, make clear is that what um, Brad Pitt's production company did is bought the rights to the book and pretty much kept the title. <laughs> they, took, they, they took the concept because the book is zombies on a global scale, and, and zombie films don't tend to have a big scale, do they? It's quite localised. It's usually a town mm. or a city or kind of like an American county. Yeah. Uh, possibly, yeah, you're usually possibly, looking possibly, at it. Yeah, possibly with World uh, sorry, The Walking Dead, you know, on TV, AMC's The Walking Dead, you get like a state wide. Yeah, yeah. it's obviously it's pretty in all of those, it is still it's still going on across yeah, the world. It's you just don't... the story is tightly focused in yeah, on yeah. a small group of survivors. Well, the, the yeah. difference is no other zombie film has had the size of budget that this has had. No. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah. true. But you know, this is taking that kind of film onto a global scale. Uh, I think a common thought about the book is that it would have been much better done as a kind of World at War slash Band of Brothers style TV series. Yeah, we've said that here before, definitely. Uh, So I think we'll just say that we're right on that, Hollywood are wrong, and and go on to the film. It does share a few things with the book. I mean, it's mostly completely different. There's a few little references, uh, you know, uh, the Indian general that gets mentioned, although you don't see him, he's obviously mm. a link to the book, Israel uh, walling themselves off and having the, the man that Brad Pitt, Pitt meets in Israel being the 10th mm-hmm. man out of 10, you know, the one who ha- nine people agree, one person has to disagree. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, no, no, that's true, actually. Uh, it took a couple of the interesting concepts and... Yeah. Uh, no Battle of Yonkers though, which upset me. But no. maybe that maybe that's still to come. Who knows? Uh, well, yeah, there's a sequel announced already, isn't there? Yeah, we've already got a sequel, so you've kind of got to look at the film in that kind of context as well. Yeah. I, I I'd like to start just by saying um, I think this is a triumph for me. It's a triumph of what can happen when you lower your expectations enough. Um, because I, I, I was pleasantly surprised I, by the film. I think, even though I think Owen disagrees with me saying it, being kind of complimentary by saying this, but it's the kind of film that I wouldn't pay to watch again, but if it was on the telly, I'd watch it again. Well, yeah, I can see that. Which I, isn't bad. Yeah, I certainly it's wouldn't, but I wouldn't buy the Blu-ray on release. Yeah. Um, mm. But I could watch this again. And I would watch this again. And like I said, so soon after Man of Steel, I would watch this again over Man of Steel like a shot. Really? Uh, well, yeah. I think Man of Steel offers a lot more on a repeat... will offer a bit more on a repeat viewing. I think there's a lot of other things there that I want to go back and study. But I'm drawing up other arguments that I probably shouldn't do. <laughs> we, we, we had like a two-hour... <laughs> discussion yeah. about it last week so yeah i've yeah. not, I'm not but, even listened to that because it was too long but did did any of you spot the wayne enterprises thing yeah we did yeah, we, did, um, we did a whole bit on that in sport reeled off a load more as well there was the lex course stuff yeah but anyway um <laughs> and all this kind of nonsense yeah um what i would say i liked about this film is actually i did like the scale of it i th- I, I was impressed by it um there were a few very good set pieces, I thought, set piece action sequences that worked well. Um, and it stayed closer to the spirit of a zombie film than I expected it to. Mm. I also like um, that even though you know Brad Pitt's the hero and you're 
99% certain going into the film that this hero will not die. They still add some certain tension throughout the film, mm. which is quite good. See, I, yeah. I didn't think there was that much tension about him. I thought he was a bit too brilliant. You know, for a bloke who works for the UN, he was pretty top-notch, wasn't he? But that... Oh, they did kind of reel off a little bit of the uh, his experience. I, it, it wasn't as if I half expected him to be a scientist who turned out to be amazing at everything, but he did have he did have a pretty impressive CV in terms of UN investigations. Well, he was like a disaster zone reporter, wasn't he? Didn't he just he, go around to different? I think he was a troublesh. Not a rep- he? He, he was a he was an investigator for the UN. He yeah. looked into war crimes and genocide. He and went, tried to get to the bottom. But he of went them. into all the dangerous places while it was actually happening, rather than after. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. I, I, I thought they. Covered I, only in as much as everyone in a Hollywood blockbuster is pretty damn. Mm. You know, I mean, John John McClane is pretty damn awesome. Don't you bad about cop. John McClane? I'm not. <laughs> I love John McClane. I'm not Owen, but <laughs> um, but I, I I just think I think that's that's an unfair criticism to level just at this film, considering pretty much every Hollywood blockbuster does something similar. And I thought Jack Reacher did that far worse, for example, than this, because Jack Reacher was literally an invincible man. Yeah, I, I mean... I did Jack Reacher that had Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher. Oh, no. God, I've started him off on that <laughs> one in the first place. Well. I watched the um, Scientology programme with Tom Cruise in, man. He's so fucking weird. If anybody yeah. watched that, that Scientologist at War that was on Channel 4 like, last week, there was some, there's some stuff about Tom Cruise in that. God, that guy's <laughs> fucking mental. Uh, so Jerry's going to get us attacked. Jerry's yeah. going to get the site hacked by Scientologists now. Which yeah, come on, bro. Um, come on. <laughs> no, seriously, they're what fucking was crazy. It? They make people's lives hell. They really they're are fucking. Well, yeah, World War Z. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, okay. Can I? I'll just say that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't didn't like. I well, not even just didn't like the book. I hated the book. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I enjoyed the film. I was cautiously optimistic that they would do it justice though you know I thought they would take the element of World War Z that was quite interesting which is the reports and stuff and then turn it into a film when they didn't say that that was happening I was you know still kind of optimistic that the, that they could do something with it just yeah. because of you know the, the names that were behind this film and all the money that was being pumped into it um, even when they were talking about the rewrite of the ending, I still thought yeah. maybe, you know, it can still be... It might just be because I enjoy zombie films regardless anyway, but mm. I was still hoping it would be good. And it, it did pretty much end up being the film I expected it to be, which was like a 7 out of 10 thriller, really. Yeah. And I think the rate... The, the, it's a 15, isn't it? It's not an 18. I think yeah. That kind of... Yeah limited how far they could go with some of the... That the was one thing that I noticed is it wasn't very bloody and gory yeah, at all. It, it, was, it, it wasn't a horror, was it? I mean, it was a thriller. No, but part of me actually thought... I, I, I didn't mind that because sometimes the gory horror stuff just can look laughable and it can take you out of the film. Yeah, yeah, because you know, I've I've watched some horror films that are classics that I absolutely love. And last year when I watched, um, what was it I watched Owen with the, where the zombie fights a shark? Zombie, uh, zombie two, flesh but, eaters, yeah. 
zombie flesh. Well, when I watched that, it was an absolutely brilliant film, but I was taken out of the film sometimes by some of the ridiculous levels of violence. And, you know, in Shaun of the Dead makes kind of great play on mm. some of the ridiculousness of the horror. And the fact that it didn't make me go, oh, look at that, oh, oh, screw it. Actually, the way the story flowed worked better without too much blood and horror. Uh, but it didn't need the blood and horror. I disagree. I think that took some of the realism out of it. I think there were a lot of... I agree there was a lot of really impressive set pieces. You know, when we talked about Roland Emmerich earlier, it reminded me of that kind of film. No. Yeah. But because of... It just seemed quite disjointed to me. The whole thing was like they, they'd found these excuses to do these big, impressive scenes, which were very impressive. But it kind of felt like they didn't really care too much about the bits in between in a lot of places. And the big cool shots were what they were prioritising because they know that's what's going to look good on a trailer and get bums on seats. And the, the PG-13 rating in the US is what they went for. And I think that that just took it just took some of the impact away, and that's what I was saying when Steve said you know you felt a bit of tension. I think that contributed to me not feeling as much because the, it didn't seem realistic enough. And maybe this makes me sound fucking mental because I've already just argued that we need more violence in films, and then I'm like, yeah, wasn't <laughs> wasn't enough peril, needed more blood and guts for me to feel frightened for him. But you know what I mean? I think it just it's a bit. It reminded me a little bit of the sort of. I mean, I've not seen Taken 2, but the, the way people have told me about Taken 2 just takes the edge off it, you know, and it needed that edge, I think. I think it could have been much better if it had real... if it was more hard-hitting. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think if it was... If it had a bit more conviction in what it was trying to do, then... Yeah. You, you, you know, you would... It, it would have made it a better film for me as well. I think as what what didn't help as well was the the CGI, which I thought was terrible. Mm, yeah, I thought it looked really bad. It was like you know the test footage when they first released the PlayStation Three and the yeah. Xbox, and you had like they were showing how they can have lots of different things all moving at the same time on the screen. Yeah, it just looked like that to me, and I just yeah, no, you're very right because I liked the big set pieces, um, and I, but the CGI was definitely a, a yeah. kind of which for negative. a two hundred million dollar budget is pretty poor, isn't it? To be honest, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was, and I don't know how much of that was because of uh, making it into 3D. Maybe they spent all their money on converting it to 3D or something rather than actually making it look good in 2D in the first place. I think it on the head there, by the way. That's the best way to describe it, is it, it kind of lacks conviction in what it wants to do. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the main thing <laughs> that came out of it. Is it, it yeah. And I know there was production problems which probably explains it, but it really didn't have any conviction. It felt like it needed a little bit more of a clear direction. Mm. I mean, I I enjoyed it for what it was, but it was like, you know, you had four bits of good films all stuck together. And it yeah. it tried to play to a lot of different audiences. So in, some zombie fans, zombie film fans, can be a bit um, pretentious, should we, we call them pretentious. They only expect one type of thing, you know? And I think yeah. it tr- it tried to please everybody by having either um, you know an urban scene and it had uh, a big like open space scene. It had a very enclosed yeah. space scene like on the plane, and it just kind of it even managed to have fast running zombies and then sometimes they shuffle yeah, as well. That's which right. that that no, I can see what you mean there about the kind of falling between two stalls. Yeah, that's yeah. I yeah. hadn't really noticed that at the it time. It was like playing zombie good... film bingo, really, because you yeah. just, you just had to tick off whatever you were seeing as it was happening. 
No, that's right. What I did like is the fact that they actually, you know, it's a bit difficult not to refer to them as zombies when you're, um, when you're basically uh, calling it World War Z. Um, <laughs> but a lot of, especially in modern times, a lot of zombie films have tended to avoid saying zombie in there. And it's very rare you actually get a film where they kind of go, oh my god, it's zombies. Usually it's like, oh, what are these shuffling, you know, what are these creatures? But they were, I quite liked from the beginning, it was like, yep, there was a there was an army report that mentioned zombies. And it was like, right, okay, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. And I quite like the fact that it was quite honest about going, yep, this is a zombie film, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, right down to the fact that I, re- I actually quite enjoyed um, Matt Bellamy uh, and Muse's soundtrack, which just sounded like a zombie film soundtrack. I don't know, because obviously you've seen a load of these, Owen, but the soundtrack just felt very Romero-influenced. Um, yeah, I, yeah, there were lots of... Uh, it was a bit um, Goblin-esque, you know? It, mm. I, I know Steve's watched a lot of zombie films as well. He's a mm. big fan of them as well. But uh, it, it, it was very... A Hollywood zombie film. In, even mm. the music, which I thought was just a bit too, uh, a bit too polished. You know, like you oh, have um, Bar- Barbarian Sound Studio yeah. last year, and that yeah. that uses the music of the films it's trying to pay uh, yeah. homage to. Th- this didn't really feel like it was trying to pay homage to them. It was just copying them and doing it bigger, which right. is pretty oh, much okay. a, a lot of what this whole film is like. And I think no, it, that's a fair point. The, the film that it most resembles to me is Twenty Eight Weeks Later, which I mm. think it, in everything from you know the fast moving zombies to having big fancy set pieces in it and getting the military involved, getting the military, and, yeah, yeah. and that that's the sort of film that this felt like to me. But if they'd just ramped up the whole American stuff a bit more. Mm. They were aiming a bit for sort of Children of Men feel as well. It yeah, yeah, I got that feel as well. Yeah. Um, which, which again, if they're dog. aspiring to a film like Children, at least at least they're aspiring to something like that. Well, I don't know why I feel the need to defend this film. I just quite enjoyed it. I didn't is there think any, it was amazing. Is there any point putting anybody else's name on the cast list other than Brad Pitt? Because like Matthew Fox was in it, and he's. Not the <laughs> actor. No, well, I can explain he, the Matthew Fox thing. Yeah. I can explain the Matthew Fox thing. Um, uh, basically. Um, there's been a lot of talk this week about basically the original ending has come out um, before Damon Lindelof got involved and got Drew Goddard in who co-scripted Cabin in the Woods and also did a lot of Buffy uh, and Lost and Alias as well Um, the original ending basically had Brad Pitt ended up in Russia um, basically for six months or something in a squad going around killing zombies and he found out that his wife and kids had been shipped off to a camp somewhere and because they had no, they had no use anymore um, she had had to essentially um, for protection go into a sexual relationship with the soldier who rescued them on the top of the thing played by Matthew Fox and that then made Brad Pitt decide to fight his way back across the world to win the woman and family he loves. That was the original ending. So that's why Matthew Fox came back in. That just sounds dumb, and it wouldn't have happened. Exactly. If it was a real-life situation, they wouldn't have, like, just... They might have kicked her off the boat, because it's quite small, but they would have had some kind of safe zone 
where you yeah. wouldn't have to be... And they were somewhere. in some kind of refugee camp. Um, yeah. And in the film, at some point, he does say something like, he knows that... He knows that as soon as she leaves the boat, eventually she won't be safe. And that is an understandable thing. Although I think one of the issues I had with the film, like you say, it being the Brad Pitt show, I didn't think there was enough peril shown to his family or anyone else. I thought it was all about the Brad Pitt investigation. The family thing was it was a bit of a nod to having some kind of emotional tie. It wasn't yeah, there, but there wasn't enough of it, was there? And they kind of forgot about it halfway through, I thought. Um, yeah, it was almost like in the editing they kind of remembered. Oh shit, we we probably yeah. But I think family stuff in part of that is about this original ending. I think the first half of the film wasn't really changed much. It's only the second half of the film that was changed, and so I think they were planning to go back to this quite dark thing where she's basically sold herself into a sexual relationship with a soldier just to get protection. That's pretty fucking dark. Um, mm. And Brad Pitt finds out about this on the other side of the world. Yeah, exactly. So what I will say is a lot of people have criticised Damon Lindelof over the last couple of years uh, for basically blaming him for fucking up Prometheus. I don't agree. Blaming him for fucking up Star Trek, uh, most recent one, uh, Into Darkness. Half agree on that. But here it seems to be a case where he's come in and he has improved the ending of this film. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think he deserves some credit there. I don't, I don't, the idea, I don't, I don't think the idea of the end game, you know, the actual solution to the problem. Can't really say much about spoiling no. the ending, but I just don't like that as a solution to the undead problem. Although I don't think it is a solution. I think that's, uh, I, I, I think it leads quite well into a sequel. That's all I would say about that. It's it's not the end of the it's not the end of the film and it's not the end of the story and they make that quite clear. So have, th- so having gotten rid of this ending that we all think is a bit rubbish, do we think mm. the one they replaced it with is good? I I liked better it. than the other one. I liked it. It's, it was a little bit. It, it, it is certainly less fucking nihilistic than the one they came up with. Um, yeah. And. And and what we ended up with was actually the last third felt like a proper zombie film, which wouldn't have happened. The, mm. the the original ending seemed like more epic action hero rather than zombie film, and at least um, yeah, it's quite tight, you know. And yeah, although well, it does mean else. apparently the original ending had um, the lobo, which is the weapon that they invented. Oh yeah, the, the shovel thing. The shovels. Now that because if you look on the credits of this film. There's like second lobo operator in the credits, and they've, so they've obviously filmed a lot of yeah. this as well. And it will be interesting to see how much of that turns up on on DVD. Um, but yeah, it, so we missed out on that. But I, no, I think I think the film actually does a really good tight last forty minutes and feels like a zombie film, um, and is and goes back kind of in reverse to a lot of other zombie films, and where it finally focuses in mm. on a number of very small characters and feels like a far more traditional zombie film. Although Peter Capaldi does not shout and swear enough. Yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna have, yeah. if you're gonna have him, put him in charge of the, the place he was in and make him shout and swear a lot, because that'd just be brilliant. Bless him. What do we <laughs> think of Mark Forster, by the way, as a director? Right. This was the other weird thing I wanted to thanks for bringing that up, Jerry, actually, because I love two of his previous films. I absolutely love, and they are nothing like Finding Neverland and Stranger Than Fiction. 
are two of my favourite films of the last 15 years. And they are nothing like this. And you can kind of tell, I think, during some of the action scenes, some of the close-in shots of the action scenes, that he's not an action director. Well, and I, I mean, do Quantum th- was a strange film, wasn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. God, he did Quantum of Solace, which yeah. is a terrible... Well, not terrible. It does get slated a lot, but compared to some of the other... Bond films. It's, Compared it's to the ones that came before and after it, he's yeah, exactly. the same people. Yeah. Uh, yeah so Has that's, anybody that's... seen Machine Gun Preacher? No, I've not yet. No. I mean, I just avoided it because it looked shit, but that was its yeah. film before this, wasn't it? So it's, it's quite yeah. interesting. But he started with Monster's Ball, which is... Yeah, exactly. So he did Monster's Ball, um, yeah, Finding Neverland, and Strange and Fiction, which are really... Kind of, uh, you know, those two are quite quirky character pieces. Very, very big on the emotion um very very big on people kind of walking around talking not yeah not a lot of action so yeah it was it was intre- very odd when his name got put together with this um, yeah because i mean even the he, i suppose he's got previous adaptations with the kite runner which was a decent adaptation mm. of, a, of a good book but again nothing like a zombie film. no and the action stuff that he's done so quantum and machine gun creature didn't go down yeah. well at all, which is it's just strange. Mm. And again, may, you can't help but think maybe he was cheap-ish and would do what he was told. <laughs> Don't know. Well, yeah, but I mean, he, he's very well respected within the academy and and all that because Monsters Ball and Finding Neverland got lots of nominations. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it was an odd choice. Yeah. Quickly, um, with the sequel being announced, what do we think about that? You know, is there scope for it? Would do you think they should just stay with Brad Pitt's character Jerry Lane? I think um, a kind of you know how in Independence Day and uh, the Day After Tomorrow that both Roland Emmerich films, um, he kind of like has the the main protagonist, the main characters, but he goes off all around different places in the world mm. and shows what has happened in there. I think mm. that could work quite well with a sequel. If you did that and you had some kind of... It would be American, obviously, but like American mm. fighting to clear their country of zombies, but then you had the bit popping off all around the world every now and again to see what they were doing, like in the day after tomorrow, that kind of thing. That Yeah, that would work for me. Yeah. I think... But I think the ending of the film gives you scope for a sequel, and I, I wouldn't be totally averse to a sequel it could it could be terrible but it might be done well um i i think the the universe they've created there has got more stories to tell or or it should only be about matthew fox's character yes yeah, yeah Solely poor, except poor, around him poor mr fox ending up on the uh cutting room floor <laughs> in quite hideous fashion yeah he was, he was hoping this was going to be his big break again wasn't he after the yeah in the uh what was the film oh he- god Oh god, it was the film with um, Tyler Perry, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Where you played the bad guy and everyone thought he was. Yeah, yeah. apparently it was shocking. Yeah, I've still not seen that. But, uh, oh yeah, I'm I'm really not sure quite what direction they should take the sequel in. I'm, I'm interested in watching it just because I think they did a decent job with with this film. But part of this film's attraction was following Brad Pitt as he goes basically all around the world wasn't it mm. and as he uncovers the mystery of what's happening and why yeah. it's happening and what what he can do mm. about it that was part of what made this film good um so if they then kind of centralize it around one character in a you know like matthew fox in a small soldier camp or something i don't really know if that's 
it won't feel like World War Z then, will it? It'll feel like small no. town I think, wars. I think, think it, I think it raised some more questions, and it definitely didn't answer every question in the film. So I think there's, I think there's still room to go there. Um, but yeah, well, I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a new feature I'm going to do, so it brings discussion on new releases to a close, so we can actually finish without ranting on. Uh, this is something <laughs> to do. Basically, I'll ask everyone if they recommend this film to people to watch one by one, and then we kind of come to a conclusion. That's a nice idea, Steve. I know, I'm full of these. Yeah. Um, so yes, James, uh, recommend this film, yes or no? Yeah. Owen? Yes, yeah. Jerry? If you've got nothing better to do. Uh, I'm going to say yes as well, so that's kind of three yeses to a no. So yes, this film is failed critic recommended. Wow. Mm. There we go. I'll try and get a sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to um, seem like I would necessarily advise people not to watch it, just that I wouldn't go out of my way to recommend it either. Okay. What were your words right at the beginning? Just before we said... I need to find your words now. You said it was an utter turgid piece of shit or something like that. No, I just said <laughs> Brad Pitt's a bellend. You said... Does it shit and Brad Pitt is a self-absorbed bell count as a spoiler? No, it doesn't. Well, I'm, I'm rethinking it more positively. <laughs> okay. I don't think it's as shit as I first thought because you made some reasonable points. Okay. Oh wow, we've won him over slightly. A wanker. You hate everyone. I don't hate. No, I really <laughs> like Brad Pitt in loads and loads of films. Okay. Which is why I'm surprised why I, he really bothered me in this one because. I think it was because the film was so much the Brad Pitt show and the whole production and everything. And it's yeah, sorry, Steve, we've kind of ruined yeah. your wrapping up idea. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, up next, we will um, be telling you what's happening next week and giving you something to watch the upcoming seven days. Right, so just um, to round off the podcast then, um, let's all recommend something coming up next week. So, James, what are you recommending for us? Okay, first off, I'm going to recommend uh, a sports documentary. Um, I watched it this week. It's one I don't know if everyone's heard of the ESPN 30 for 30 series. Yeah. Some really, really interesting sports documentaries. Well, in their second branch of 30 for 30s there's a really really good one it's one of the highest rated ones of those um it's about baseball um and it's called catching hell it's available on netflix us um basically you might you may remember this happening in terms of like being on youtube and stuff like that in the world series semi-final the chicago um it happened in 2003 chicago cubs um were on the verge of breaking like an 80 year old curse um, and until one of their fans interfered and went to catch a ball, um, which had almost gone over the fence, but hadn't. And so they stopped one of their own fielders catching the ball. And so it basically everyone in Chicago blamed this one fan for ruining their chances of getting to the World Series. And it's a documentary that looks at that particular incident. His name's Steve Bartman. He's called Bartman, which is awesome. Um, and looks at actually looks at scapegoating in sport in general and talks about another one uh by St- Bill Buckner who is a 
uh, a baseball player who also a few years before that um, when playing for the Boston Red Sox made a complete hash of a fielding uh, opportunity which again cost the team a place in the World Series for the first time in 90 years or something like that. It's a really really good documentary about sport. You don't need to know too much about baseball. A bit like when I watch Moneyball. Mm. Um, I mean, don't need to watch... Um, sorry, wait, A lot of these ESPN um, documentaries, as, as mm. good as they are, are all most of them are centered around like the like top four American sports of baseball, yeah. NFL, basketball, hockey, ice hockey. Yeah. But they make a good fist of you not having to understand those sports so much to be able to watch exactly for the most part excellent documentaries. Yeah, and I basically most people will know enough about baseball to completely follow this because it is about knowing that you need to get three people out and there's nine uh nine innings and stuff like that so it's good it's quite simple and it, it talks about the psychology of scapegoating as well really really interesting so i'd say i definitely recommend that and the other thing i do want to quickly mention because it's out the week after um is ben wheatley who we mentioned earlier um, the British director has got a new film. It's called A Field in England. It's set during the English Civil War in the 17th century. It's about a group of deserters who flee from a battle and become involved in searching for treasure. Apparently, it's um, it's quite psycho. It's a psychedelic trip into magic and madness. Um, sounds very very interesting. It stars um Julian Barrett from The Mighty Boosh and Reese Shearsmith from uh, League of Gentlemen, um, and very very interestingly in a new experiment which has been helped funded by the BFI it is going to be simultaneously screened in cinemas it's going to uh, premiere on film 4 that night it's also going to be available to buy on Blu-ray and DVD that day and you'll be able to get it on video on demand as well from places like Blinkbox or um, Sky Movies and things like that so it's a really, really interesting project anyway. And the film sounds quite interesting. English Civil War, Ben Wheatley horror. Yeah, I'm I'm quite interested in that. So um, that's the following week on the 5th of July, but I did want to give everyone a heads up. Okay. Uh, I will recommend uh, Casey Perry, Path of Me, is now on Netflix UK. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Only joking. Uh, I think this was one that I watched to review, but it ended up being done uh, the same week as we had one of our specials, so I don't think I actually reviewed it, but it's uh, 50-50, starring um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Seth Rogen. Lovely little film, that. Yeah, as jo- Gordon-Levitt is a young man who who gets very ill. I think it's cancelled, I can't quite remember. Seth Rogen's kind of best mate. It's not a comedy, despite it Seth. Rogen, yeah, despite Seth Rogen being in it, it's not um, a comedy. It's just kind of, sort of a young man trying to deal with this horrible situation he's in and it's his not horrible. Funny bits, though. It has got funny bits. I mean, you'd expect it to with with you know the kind of cast it's got, but it, it's not like a full on comedy. Um, Do you know yeah. the backstory to it, Steve? I don't know. Well, Seth Rogen is playing Seth Rogen. Yeah. In real life. Yeah. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is playing the director of the film, who is Seth Rogen's best mate. Mm. Yeah. And it's actually Seth Rogen and his best mate. This is what they actually did. And then he directed it, and Seth Rogen played himself, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt played the director. Yeah, I've, I've heard that, because I've still not got around to seeing this film, and I know it's on Netflix, and I really should watch it. But yeah, because I've seen a few people go, oh, it's Seth Rogen playing Seth Rogen in a kind of like, 
oh look he always plays the same character and I've had to kind of point out to them knowing that story that no that yeah you're right it is Seth Rogen actually playing the Seth Rogen that helped someone through cancer so yeah I'm I'm very very much looking forward to that um, when I eventually get round to watching it no very good that's on Netflix UK it's probably on lots of versions of Netflix actually uh, yeah. Owen are you there uh, yeah I've got <laughs> slightly reversed to what I normally do in that there were three films on this week. Three films which I think are the worst Ooh. superhero films ever made. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's the well, film. <laughs> no, it's uh, Electra, which is actually on the night that we're recording, so you can't watch oh, that. Um, five star for the best. content. Yeah, for the best. We've also got Catwoman on ITV2 <sighs> on Saturday uh, at 11 in the morning. Oh. And Spider-Man 3 on 5 Star at 9pm on Friday. Oh, oh Spider-Man emo Spider-Man. Territory. It is. It is. They're, they're three, I just can't stand any of those films. Three absolutely dire um, superhero films. But following on from World War Z, there is a Brad Pitt film which is on Love Film Instant, Snatch, which is brilliant. So rather than watching any of those three films, watch Snatch on Love Film instead. Nice. Okay, and Jerry. Um, I think I've talked about this not too long ago, actually. Uh, Friday night, quarter past one in the morning, so probably want to record or watch when you're a bit pissed up when you get back in, depending on your lifestyle choices. Uh, Looking for Eric on Film 4, mm-hmm. which is a uh, Ken Loach film starring Eric Cantona. And that is all you need to know, because he plays the trumpet and it's wonderful. Nice. <laughs> uh, also, um, The Devil's Backbone's on on Thursday night after midnight on the Horror Channel, Jerry. Would you recommend that? Oh, if you've not seen it, yes, definitely. Watch yeah, I've that. not seen it. Okay, cool. I don't have the horror channel, so. No, actually, shit, I don't either. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Owen can watch it again and think it's all right. Do you get the horror channel on TV catch up? No, I don't because oh. I've, I've downgraded to medium on Virgin, so I've, I've lost the horror channel. I'm gutted. Also, um, on the topic of Ken Loach films... Which people really need to know. Oh, yes, yeah, mention this, yes. Spirit of 45 uh, was on tonight when we were recording, but I think it's on again on Sunday. I think you're exact. Check listings, yeah, on yeah. tape, that looks very, very interesting. It's um, Ken Loach's documentary slash archive footage mashup uh, about the birth of the NHS. Uh, it was made, it was only made this year or last year. It's very recent, so... Um, it's it's made under the current situation with the NHS and under government pressures, shall we say. Mm-hmm. It's undoubtedly going to be political. I couldn't see it at the cinema. They didn't show it anywhere near me. Yeah, same um, here. But I'm really excited to watch that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely worth a watch, I think, without having seen it. There we go. Okay. Um, and what are we doing next week? Uh, next week is... Oh God! Do you know I I oh I've been really good at trying to remember what we're doing <laughs> next week. Is it Studio Ghibli finally next week? Uh, that always up. gets this, postponed. We can say it is uh, and then change it. We can say it is and then change it. Yeah, no, uh, hang on, I'm nearly there. I, I can't believe how terrible I am. Uh, oh no, no, it isn't. Studio Ghibli's not for ages. Uh, next week it is um, about movie companies to work for about um, basically to time with what looks like a terrible uh, film, The Internship. So it'll be about... Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm not sure if we go do... Next week. Pardon? Is Despicable Me 2 out next week? I have no idea. Yes. I, how is it? Yeah. 
Well, I will have watched okay. that. Let's put it that way. I fucking love okay. this movie. So, so you'll be reviewing that, and we'll be either doing uh, worst movie companies to work for or best movie companies to work for. I don't know. <laughs> We're slightly shambolic. Right. Uh, yeah, thanks to everyone who has listened and contributed to this podcast. Join us again next week for, I don't know what, something about films, probably. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. No promises. The Fail Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman, with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at, at failedcritics. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.